Hello, and welcome to the Expanding Eyes podcast. We have been discussing Shakespeare's Hamlet, and we left off last time with Ophelia's famous mad scene in Act 4, to which we return this week because there is yet more to discuss there. It is a very complex scene to interpret. And, in a sense, by returning, we're doing no more than Ophelia herself does, because in one way of looking at it, Ophelia returns three times mad, though one of them, the third and final, is only by report. But an appearance and then a disappearance three times, interrupted briefly. I bring this up because, strangely enough, we're going to eventually be looking at some possible mythical underlying patterns to the death of Ophelia and to what its effects are rippling down through the rest of the play. We begin with Act 4, Scene 5, which running with a brief interruption of scene six continuously through scene seven really constitutes one no good, very bad day for the court of Denmark. People keep bursting in and having scenes over and over again. Beginning with Ophelia, then to back up for a moment and see the overall pattern before we return to specifics. Then, almost immediately, her brother Laertes bursts in, howling and ranting and raving. Then, interrupted by the second appearance of Ophelia, and we ask why Shakespeare has broken it up like this. Then, a very brief interlude, uh, basically a long paragraph, uh, Act 4, Scene 6, Horatio receiving letters, one of which he will deliver to the court of Denmark, taking us to Scene 7, where in fact he does so, and the next interruption is the letter, Claudius reading the letter, speaking of Hamlet's return. Then the queen interrupts yet one more time. It really is a no good, very bad day. And perhaps I shouldn't be joking because this is the final death reported offstage of Ophelia, of necessity, not because Shakespeare was afraid to show it, but it's even for Shakespeare in the Elizabethan stage with its remarkable flexibility of getting the audience to imagine all sorts of things with very few props. Even then, it would be have been pushing it a bit to have somebody drowned to death on stage. That's the overall pattern. We go back to trace this. Ophelia, we had seen something of her first appearance, mad, prelude, the gentleman comes in, announces that she approaches, and says, 
her speech is nothing, a key word in the play, remarkably so because it becomes the word of King Lear a few years later, a word that carries over thematic significance from one of Shakespeare's two greatest tragedies to the other. Her speech is nothing, meaning there is no rational content to it, but it plants that word like a musical motif. In comes Ophelia, and according to the first quarto, she is playing on a harp with her hair down. The first quarto is an unreliable quarto, but it seems to have some amount of actual stage directions indicating how it might actually have been staged uh, in Shakespeare's time. And she comes on singing, singing songs and making commentaries on her own songs. And as we pointed out last time, they are songs which circle around some sort of grieving someone who is absent because he is dead and taken away. Well, that's not mad. She just witnessed her own father being killed and by her own boyfriend, Hamlet, no less. However, there are things that are more mysterious here because intermixed with the grieving for someone who is dead and laid in the cold ground are lyrics about the betrayal of men, men betraying women, and especially sexual betrayal. One song begins, Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, and it's sung by a maiden who is a maiden no more. Then up he rose and donned his clothes and up the chamber door, let in the maid that out a maid ne'er departed more. And goes on singing to finish that song, young men will do it if they come to it by cock they are to blame. Quoth she, before you tumbled me, you promised me to wed. So would I have done by yonder sun, and thou hast not come to my bed. What's all that about? That's not about her father. Or so we think. Is it about Hamlet, then? Because it does appear the longer we think about the contents of both her speeches and her song lyrics, that her father and her lover, the two men of her life, are conflated almost as in a dream. And I said lover, and the question leads to, at least in the eyes of some interpreters, how are we to take lover Yes, Hamlet courted her, we know that. He wrote bad poetry to her. He gave her gifts, which she was required to return. The question is, were they lovers? And some people suggest that they were. I personally find that possible 
but perhaps a bit of a stretch. It would not fit the pattern and how far we should read one Shakespeare play in the light of the patterns of others is always a question. There can always be exceptions. But nonetheless, the pattern in Shakespeare's plays is of a male distrust of women sexually and accusations about their untrustworthiness, the explosive example, of course, being Othello and Desdemona, but, as that example explosively proves, in every single case, the woman is unjustly accused. There is no female infidelity. So all of Hamlet's horrid remarks earlier in Act Three get thee to a nunnery because all women are not to be sexually trusted. And of course, he's got his mother on his mind, so he's conflating the two women of his life. And Ophelia seems to be doing something parallel here. But especially given the shrinking character of Ophelia, the good girl holding the prayer book aspect of her, you would have to think that she would have become lovers only perhaps in what we would now see as a kind of abusive relationship. And that is perhaps the possibility being hinted at by some interpreters. Moreover, it goes even further than that, and this is ensconced in Kenneth Branagh's interpretation of it in his full version of Hamlet. I use it as an example so often, not only because it's very high quality, but because indeed it is a complete version, and there ain't many of those for a four-hour-plus play. But the question there is, given the conflation of the two betraying male figures in the lyrics and in the associative babble that Ophelia puts in between those lyrics, has she had some sort of quasi-incestuous relationship with her own father? And I think that interpreters who go down this route are thinking again of the terms of the parallelism. Hamlet is obsessed with his mother's sex life, and it gets projected then onto as a possibility, but nevertheless as a suspicion, onto his girlfriend. Here we have, from the opposite point of view, a girl with a father and a boyfriend. And Branagh's version does indeed pretty strongly hint that there was inappropriate behavior on the part of Polonius, to which we say, yuck. I find it more than a bit of a stretch. In the first place, Hamlet did not have anything to do with his mother. Yes, he's obsessed with her sexuality and regards it as disgusting. And there is the Freudian interpretation of an unconscious desire for the mother and an antagonism to the father, which Hamlet disguises by idealizing 
the father. The critics who go down the incestuous route, however, are literalizing that in the case of Ophelia, and I don't find personally that very convincing. But there is the parallel, however. I am not saying that Ophelia had incestuous fantasies about her father, but I am saying that in the unconscious lie all the forbidden desires on part of both men and women, and buried down well below consciousness is the taboo. The father for the girl is the original object of desire that has to be moved away from by projecting the original desire instead upon an appropriate male to which she's not related. But in the unconscious, the original wish still lies there. That doesn't mean, my point is, that it was acted upon in any way. Though, again, it could have been. It is, after all, Freud who came up with the explosive view, and it exploded in the feminist era in the 1990s, that girls did fantasize about relationships with their father, and actually to the point where they believed that they were molested, and reported this to their analyst, and for a while, Freud himself believed these stories and then announced that he'd realized that most of them were simply imagined rather than real. This does not go over too well in an era that, since that time, has discovered that men all too often do molest their daughters, and so do older brothers molest their sisters. And what's driving that if Freud is just a bunch of hokum? It is tangled, it is not pleasant, but there is a mess there that comes out as a tangled mess in the mad ravings of Ophelia, which nevertheless there's method in her madness as well. At any rate, there are two figures both of them who, in a sense, betrayed in Ophelia's speeches and songs. And Ophelia has been betrayed. She is accused of betrayal, remember. But in a way, she has been betrayed by both of the men in her life. She has tried her hardest to remain loyal to them. And the reason she's gone mad is that it is impossible to remain loyal to the one without betraying the other. It's an impossible bind, and her innocent mind simply cannot cope with that and cracks. If she had been another type of Shakespearean heroine, a tougher sort like Beatrice in Much Ado About Nothing or Rosalind in uh, as you like it, it might have gone quite differently. Nonetheless, poor Ophelia cracks and goes mad, and it is one of the most poignant scenes in all of drama, one of the great female roles to play the mad scene.
out she goes. In immediately bursts her brother with others, as the stage direction has it. He has gotten up a mob, a potentially mutinous, revolutionary mob, coming to Claudius and demanding revenge. Bursts in, O thou vile king, give me my father. What is this? Hamlet has killed Polonius, yet Laertes takes Claudius to be the culprit. Does he think that Hamlet was put up to it by Claudius? Interesting parallel there. However, it's a remarkable scene because of the behavior of Claudius. I pointed this out last time, but let's plant it here again to fit the total pattern. Claudius, say what we will about him, handles Laertes and this potentially quite dangerous situation coolly, calmly, shrewdly, and we have to grant with a good amount of courage because Laertes is a loose cannon and it's always possible that a loose cannon can go off in your direction. Nevertheless, he says, let him go. Do not fear our person. There's such divinity doth hedge a king that treason can but peep to what it would. Divinity hedging the king, which is a rather anachronistic reference to the idea of the king being God's anointed. Divinity hovers around. It doesn't, as they say, totally fit the context of medieval Denmark, and it especially doesn't fit it because this king, as we will find out later, and we must talk about later when we arrive at the place in the text where it emerges, these kings were in fact elected by a group of elders. So Hamlet speaks of Claudius having popped in between the election and my hopes. Yet, Claudius feels that there is a divinity, a divine sanction that hedges him and protects him. He also, frankly, courage I'll grant him, but he also may be shrewdly assessing that Laertes is yet another figure who, much like his father, though in a different way, a more hot-headed way, is a lot of hot air, a lot of talk, and maybe not so much action. Certainly, the speeches here are not convincing. They are over the top. Laertes, well, protests too much. He claims that he will dare damnation and vows go to the blackest hell, conscience and grace to the profoundest hell. I dare damnation, he says. This is phony talk. Uh, it's very doubtful whether Laertes really means it. He likes to make a good scene, runs in the family. All three of them are dramatists in that way, good actors. We've had a good show by Ophelia. That's a cruel thing to say, and yet it is high drama. 
she could have just gone off and hanged herself in the closet, you know. Uh, but no, we come on stage, we hand out symbolic flowers to people, of which, as I should have pointed out, purple flowers, speaking of patterns that may ultimately go back to mythological patterns, purple flowers seem to hover around Ophelia, at least by mention, particularly the English flower of the violet, mentioned two or three times in the text, as well as other flowers, each of which has a symbolic meaning. Flowers are for funerals, and in a very real sense, Ophelia is officiating at her own funeral here, or at least her own death scene, which is perhaps in recognition of the fact that she is only grudgingly go going to be granted any type of official normal funeral at all in Act 5. The priest is ready to forbid it until royalty finally makes a command because she is a suicide, and suicides are not allowed ceremonies or burial in consecrated grounds. But to go back to the present scene, we have Polonius who did acting in college and acted a role of the role of Julius Caesar. We have Ophelia with her highly dramatic mad scene. And now we have Laertes with his highly dramatic I mean, Laertes here is doing exactly what Hamlet counseled the players not to do. And here he goes. Claudius, I think probably shrewdly assesses that this guy is a lot of talk. He could be led to some action, but he'll have to be led to it. And Claudius skillfully, within the scene, manipulates him until finally, by the end of it, Laertes is an instrument that, speaking of words that move from play to play of Shakespeare's, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, accused by Hamlet of trying to play upon him as if he were an instrument, a passive thing to be manipulated. And that idea and that imagery also moves through Macbeth, again later in Shakespeare's career. Nevertheless, the manipulated one here is Laertes. First, however, Ophelia comes back in with more songs and with flowers. This time, instead of the young man, this time it is more logically, at least on the surface, an old man being mourned. The lyrics say he is dead, Go to thy deathbed, he will never come again. His beard was white as snow. All flaxen was his pall. He is gone, he is gone, and so forth. Now is mourning for an old male figure. Ophelia, entrance two. Then the brief interlude, act four, scene six. Horatio is given messages by some sailors. What's going on here? What's going on here is the creakiest plot moment in all of Hamlet. Though again, 
what might lie beneath the surface of apparent plot manipulation in a rather blatant way. Hamlet has been sent with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern accompanying him to England, ostensibly to get him out of the way and maybe to calm him down, get him out of the scene, this pressure cooker of Denmark. Maybe he'll recuperate by going to England and getting a change of air and also keeping Claudius out of danger from Hamlet because Laertes does not unnerve Claudius, but Hamlet does. There's a very significant difference. At any rate, Horatio reads one of two letters. One of them is for him, one of them is for Claudius. He reads the one for himself and finds that, oh, as we were sailing two days towards England, I was captured by pirates who boarded the ship. Oh, how interesting, how convenient. Uh, and the pirates, lucky for me, recognized that I was well-connected and therefore treated me well because they expected maybe to get some ransom or some sort of recompense if they did that. But at any rate, I have got them on my side and I will be able to return. I give you a message to give to the king. Pass over to Act 4, Scene 7, and back to the king and Laertes, who are still there, in the courtroom in conference, and in comes the messenger with the message for him from Hamlet. High and mighty, you shall know I am set naked on your kingdom. Tomorrow I shall beg leave to see your kingly eyes. Hi. It's Hamlet, I'm back, but I am set naked on your kingdom. And what that means, if you read, as I hope you are, an annotated edition, is it's just me, me alone. In other words, I haven't come back with an army in the way that in Shakespeare's history plays, Bolingbroke, exiled by Richard II, did come back with an army in order to take his kingdom back and depose Richard and kill him. No, just me, and I'll come to see you tomorrow. Maybe it's always a question of how much weight you put on any individual piece of evidence, textual evidence in any work of literature. But the idea of being set naked, yes, it means without an army, but it also suggests something else. If you're thinking in a different context, a more mythical context. Ophelia, the very next thing we're going to hear about is Ophelia, who dies by drowning. She, as I say, could have done away with herself quietly in a more normal manner, but no, she wanders into water and drowns simply by refusing to swim, just letting her clothes get weighted down and going down passively and without resistance, giving up. Vivid metaphor for a girl who passively is weighted down by her life and just simply gives up and goes under it. There's 
enormous pathos about her. But something else as well. T.S. Eliot's Wasteland is full of references to Hamlet, including to Ophelia's mad scene, the famous lines, good night, sweet ladies, good night, good night. And the wasteland is full of recurrent images of an innocent young girl who takes various guises, surrounded by tragic pathos, Ophelia being one of them. And one of the famous lines of the wasteland is, fear death by drowning. Hamlet did not drown, but he did go across the water and returns naked, and as we shall see, moving from this scene to the beginning of Act V, radically changed in his consciousness, in his attitude. There is, in other words, if you choose to go that far, a suggestion of some sort of baptismal death and rebirth to a new identity experience, because that's what baptism is. It isn't definitive, but it, every time you find imagery, and this is especially true of Shakespeare, though it's true of all texts, but at any time in Shakespeare, I always tell students, when you find a speech that seems to make no sense at all, and why am I reading this, pay very close attention. Something is most likely buried there that is possibly crucial. So we shall see what we think. And anyway, we are grasping at straws in this enigmatic play. Well, back to plotting. And the king manipulates Laertes into a plot by which Hamlet will be killed eliminating the threat to Claudius, giving Laertes his beloved revenge. And it's going to be a sword fight in which we're going to cheat with poison. Claudius is quite good with poison. He gets around with this poisoning stuff. And Laertes is his friend for life by the end of it. He gets Laertes to do his, do his dirty work for him. And then one final time we read of Ophelia. The queen comes in and says, One woe doth, doth tread upon another's heel, so fast they follow. Your sister's drowned, Laertes. And she describes it. A willow grows askant the brook. And flowers She's going there for the flowers. And once again, a purple flower, long purples that liberal shepherds give a grosser name, but our cold maids do dead men's fingers call them. And these are, if you have an annotated edition, a type of orchid, but the shepherds are noting their resemblance to testicles. So again, we have the unconscious imagery of sexuality on the part of Ophelia. And again, the reference to purple. Purple is the color of a dying and resurrecting God, a whole type of deity in mythology. And of course, Christ in dying and resurrecting became the real 
dying god as opposed in a, from a Christian view of the various false pagan ones who were fertility symbols, symbols of the death and resurrection of life in nature. Christ's resurrection was a resurrection to a supernatural, above natural life, but yet the color purple associated with both of them. The purple is really synonymous, at least in Elizabethan times, with red, and the full color scheme is red and white. Tomorrow is St. Valentine's Day, red and white, the colors of love, but also the colors of death. And when it's death, the mood darkens it to purple. We shall see more later on of this imagery. And that takes us to Act 5, where finally we have a resolution. And yet still, it isn't just Hamlet that delays, the play delays. There is an insightful essay about Othello by the critic Patricia Parker, which seizes upon the word in the text of Othello, dilation, time dilates. And she talks about the rhythm of delay followed by spasmodic violent action in Othello. And yet we find it here in Hamlet as well, a play that is practically about procrastination from one point of view. And instead of moving directly to the plot, we get what? We get a couple of clowns doing a comedy act in a graveyard. One of the most famous scenes in all of Hamlet, and yet, why is this here? Why is it necessary to the plot? And, of course, the neoclassical critics would have just rolled their eyes at mixing not just comedy, but low comedy, no pun intended, since these are grave diggers, but two low-life clowns making the kind of jokes that low-life clowns often make, often for all of their lower social class, shrewd to the point of oracular. And that is true of these clowns. The word clown, by the way, refers to a type of actor in an Elizabethan acting troupe that specialized in comedy, in comic scenes, especially clowning around, low humor, farce, slapstick, and so forth. And here we come to the graveyard, Hamlet and Horatio listening to the joking of two gravediggers played by the clowns. Why is this here? We will take up from this funereal point next time.